Sir Michael Atiyah was one of the finest mathematicians of the past century. He died last January, only a few weeks after he gave me the interview you're about to hear, recorded on the 1st of November. Then, in his late 80s, he was still working hard, looking to the future, barely able to contain his enthusiasm for his subject. My name is Graham Farmelow, and I'm the author of The Universe Speaks in Numbers, about how the mysterious harmony between physics and mathematics enriches our understanding of the universe. Technically brilliant and amazingly imaginative, Michael Atiyah was also a generous spirit, as I've seen at first hand over the past three years. He's one of the leading figures in my story, and he spent hours talking with me in his modest apartment in Edinburgh, with a splendid view over the surrounding hills. One of his favourite themes was that we should value mathematicians of every stripe, those who prize rigour above everything else, those who are more concerned with ideas, those who are practically minded, those who like their subject presented as abstractly as possible. There are a great many types of mathematician, he told me, and we need all of them. Atiyah never much enjoyed manipulating X's and Y's. He was not algebraically minded. No, he was above all a geometer, fascinated by shape, size, properties of space and so on. And he loved to exercise his visual imagination. Relatively late in his career, in the 1970s, he began his journey to becoming what he described as a quasi-physicist. Fascinated by the geometry of gauge fields, which were becoming central to the work of particle physicists, he began to collaborate with dozens of others to elucidate the mathematics underlying the physicist's theory. He had a favourite metaphor. Before the 1970s, the physicists working on gauge theories were digging one tunnel, while mathematicians were working on a related subject in a completely different tunnel. The two groups were pretty much oblivious to each other. Michael was present when the tunnels intersected, and he marvelled that that intersection appeared to have been perfectly engineered. I remember greeting him at his front door when I arrived on that November morning. Beaming and leaning heavily on his walking stick, he said he was glad we weren't scheduled to talk the day before because he'd had a nasty turn, possibly a mini-stroke. His doctor ordered him to rest, so Michael spent the rest of the day listening to bark the first time in 20 years that Michael has spent an entire day without doing any mathematics at all. I began by asking him about his youth. It seems that he shone from the word go. So, uh, Michael, you felt you were a mathematician, or your parents thought you were a mathematician, right from when you were a boy, is that right? Yes, he saw me exchanging my pocket money, making money, mm. then he decided I was a mathematician, mm. and uh, I was always best at mathematics. I only once ever failed to come first in mathematics. I was very cropped. Right. <laughs> so I was obviously going to be a mathematician. Yeah. But I was into other things. Yeah. You know, small boys were interested in being engine drivers. Yeah. I was interested in being a chemist, pouring dangerous liquids into other things, you know, <laughs> and exploding the place. But, yeah. uh, and so, yes, and I played around with chemistry. and, and uh, But then by the time I was ready to go to university, it was clear I was going to be a mathematician. Right, OK. And you went to Trinity College. I went to, to Trinity College, Cambridge, which is the home of all great mathematicians, of course. Yes. And did you feel you were, were really good there? Did you, or did you feel that you were up with people at that time comparable to you? Well, you don't quite know. Uh, I went 
to a very good school, not not by accident. Mm. When we came to this country, my father said, "What's the best school for mathematics in the country?" Yeah, they said Manchester Grammar School. Yep, I went to Manchester Grammar School, and I had magnificent teachers. Oh. We worked really hard, yeah. and we all got scholarships to Trinity. Yeah, so I knew I was pretty good. Right, <laughs> but I didn't know how good. Yeah, indeed. So when we went to Trinity, there were a lot of other guys who all came from fancy schools mm. and threw their weight around. I said, "These guys are smart." Yeah. But at the end of the year, I was top. Oh, good. So good. after the first year, I knew I was top. Right, okay. And uh, then, then after that, plain sailing, I assumed it. That was the sound of the Tia's doorbell. The double glazing people had come to measure up his windows. A few minutes later, we resumed. As a student at Cambridge, he was, of course, outstanding. Chief among his mathematical heroes was Hermann Weyl, who also made visionary contributions to physics setting up the type of theory known as gauge theory, now used to describe all the subatomic forces. But first, let's go back to Cambridge. Sometimes people go to prodigies and they go very fast. Mm. I, was, I was not a prodigy. I finished school in Egypt at 16. Yeah. And I could have gone to university then. None of you did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But in fact, I didn't. Yeah. I came to Manchester Grammar School. Yes, yes, yes. And after that, I could have avoided national service, but I didn't. Yeah. So the national service. Yeah. How long was it? Two years you did it. Nearly two years. You know, I still hear, I still hear the martial tone in your voice somehow. Ah, <laughs> let me tell you this. When I was in the army, I rode to rose the great heights of acting Lance Corporal. Oh my goodness. And yeah. I had to, I had to drill a squad round a square. Mm. And I would yell out, shout, "Rome, let me rule!" And then the regimental sergeant major, whose voice was hoarse, mm. said to me, "Yeah, oh, man, I wish I had a voice like yours." <laughs> I could have had a military career. You could? Well, no, that would have been quite a loss to mathematics, I have to say. But, yeah, well, <laughs> but actually, on the hand, the voice mm. that carried me across the barrack square helped me in the lecture room. I'd like, I'd like to have heard your voice before that military service, because I do think it added something to your... Uh... It may have been a bit tougher. <laughs> anyway, let, just to review, I mean, I, there's too much, obviously too much yeah. to go into detail, but you, you were quickly... Uh, on the international stage, you even uh, you even went to a Bubaki conference. I hear. Uh, the, yes. Uh, and, you, and and you also uh, you saw your hero uh, Herman Weil at one point. Never actually met him, I gather. Yes, yeah. I heard him give a talk to the Amsterdam International Congress, mm. where he gave out field medals mm. to people who I knew well, mm. and it was a marvelous speech. Oh, yeah, right. Weil was a man of of uh, mellifluous words. Really, yeah. And even though, as he said. He spoke in a language not sung by the gods of his cradle. Yeah. Well, who would say that? <laughs> no Englishman would have had the courage to say that. Yeah. Yeah. He, he's, English was superb. Oh, right. he's a, he's, I can sense he's a real someone you really admire. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. What is it, incidentally? Can you summarise what particularly... Did you admire him at that stage in your life? I admired him at several stages. Oh, right. Mm. I remember my, my, my supervisor, Mr Hodge. Oh, yeah. Who knew these people. There were not many around. Mm. And he said, Herman Vile was called... Heiliger Hermann. Yeah. They thought he was a bit pompous. Oh, really? Okay. Well, all right. It may have been he's just an old star. You know, remember, he's from a different generation. Yes, totally different generation. Yeah. Anyway, mm. he was called Heiliger Hermann. Mm. I heard that from my, my supervisor. Right. But he was a marvellous speaker. Okay, you may be holy, but holy speakers make good speeches. Yes. Sermons. Yes. He was fantastic. And then later on, I found out what he'd done, everything, everywhere I went. Who was there first? Yeah, that's amazing, yeah. Fifty years after he died, mm-hmm. I was asked by the National Academy to write a obituary. Yeah. Nobody got around to doing it. Oh, that was terrible, yeah. So yeah. I, I did it, and yeah. I thought, great, I can tell, instead of saying, when somebody dies, what 
well, his impact will be on the next 50 years. Yeah. I said, what did he make in the last 50 years? Last 50 years, yeah. So I read, and then I wrote that very nicely. Yeah, yeah. And then recently, I discovered more things that he did. Yeah. So I could write another version now saying, I didn't talk about something he did. Yeah. I didn't talk about his work in logic. Mm. I didn't know about his work in arithmetic. Yeah. Now I know about those. Okay. So I could write a third installment right. of appreciation yeah. showing that I understood all that. Yeah. So I've, I've, my life has, has come to the end mm. I've just about caught up with Herman Weyer. So that's, so he's, he's my trailblazer all the way through. Well, what is amazing about, uh, from a physicist's point of view, if I may say, is, of course, that he was an authentically great mathematician who made seriously good contributions to physics. Right? Absolutely. I mean, you know, real pioneer. In those days, yeah. think about it, it wasn't so unusual. Mm. Clark Maxwell was undoubtedly yeah. a great physicist, yeah. but he was also a great mathematician. Yeah. William Rowan Hamilton mm. was a great physicist and a great mathematician. Mm. Isaac Newton. Mm. So it is only in recent times that people thought you can't be a great mathematician and a great physicist. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's a mistake. Yes. Yeah. Uh, mm-hmm. And if you, you if you try to preserve that boundary, mm. you know you deceive yourself. Yeah, but Vile uh, was uh, it, uh, started making contributions relatively early in his career to, d- to physics. But in your case, if I may say, I think it's f- fair to say that uh, you mean you had already established yourself in the world of mathematics very firmly in the, in, in the what, early 1970s when physics caught your eyes. Is that, is that correct, would you say? Yes, you yeah. see, partly because by this stage, mathematics and physics are both much more sophisticated. So it took you longer to get to the front line. Mm. Uh, and so... I wasn't until I was my middle thirties that I began to sort of see the end of math- where mathematics was going, mm. and at that stage I was interested in physics too. You've described to me many times about how you met in Jakeef's office, and, you, yes. uh, and that's where you first set eyes on Edward Whitney. Exactly, uh, and, and you, you you found that quite a memorable meeting. Absolutely. I remember. Yeah, he he, was, he stood out as the young man who understood much better than anybody else. Yes, and I was a bit surprised. But I had met him before, mm-hmm. and uh, the more I thought about it, the more obvious it was. Mm. So I invited him over to Oxford. Yes. And he came over and great, gave him marvelous lectures. Yeah. And so he's obviously a great star. Mm. But I just, I, I found him, and he'd landed on my plate. Yeah. I just flew over to meet him, and, and suddenly it was, it was, so that, that was really quite a dramatic shift. Yes. The moment it was ripe, the mathematics and physics had already overlapped. Yeah. But we didn't even realize it. Yes. Nobody realized it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, there were glimmerings, Yang and Chern, you know, mm-hmm. but, but mm-hmm. science, it, it was only being sort of beginning to be felt. Yes. It wasn't a revolution yet, it was simply, simply a sort of a tremor. No, that's right. Well, of course, it, for physicists in the 70s, this was a time that their standard model of the basic forces of nature was, was shaping up. So, if I may say, your, the area that you yeah. and Edward Whitman look at was relatively <coughs> a backwater for, for physics, but it, this was an area that, uh, you know, in, in the hands of you and your, uh, your colleagues, it got bigger and bigger, basically. I suppose it is true. We were, we were coming in at the top end. Anomalies were sort of rather refined pieces of theory. Yes, yeah, yeah. Um, but, on the other hand, our theory rested on more foundations. And when you went down those foundations, you met the same foundations you met in physics. Yeah. Atiyah later told me he regarded himself as both Edward Witten's student and his teacher. It proved to be an immensely influential partnership. I asked Atiyah about the cultural shift he experienced when he moved from the world of mathematics to the world of physics. 
He began a long riff on some of his favourite subjects. He attacked the institution of Nobel Prizes, dismissed critics of the mathematician's new and close relationship with physicists, and reflected on the Bubaki group, which exerted huge influence on mathematics from the late 1930s. This group put an extremely high premium on rigour and a correspondingly low premium on applying mathematics to the real world. But the agenda was too dogmatic for a tier, and he doesn't mind saying so. Tell me about how it felt to move from a mathematics culture to a culture when you were much more closely associated with physicists. Because that must have been a change for you after all those years in, uh, when you're doing just pure mathematics. Well, it, it, it wasn't quite such a discontinuity as it seems. I'd always been interested in these things, and I gradually became more and more interested. And it was a learning process. Mm. When you learn, you don't sort of suddenly learn all at once. Mm. You learn by stages. Mm. You gradually pick things up. Mm-hmm. And the best way you learn mm-hmm. is by being a, a apprentice to the master. Mm. So I would go around with people like that. Mm-hmm. And from them I would... But he was learning from you too, I'm sure. Yes, of course. We were all learning. So it's a mutual learning. But we, we were learning from each other. Mm. And, and I was learning my physics from talking to a variety of physicists. Mm. And I realised that by meeting a number of them, all physicists, especially those who got Nobel Prizes, mm-hmm. tend to be a little bit prima donna. Do you well, think that's true of the mathematicians as well, or is that just physicists, you think? I think they're more prima donna than physics. Okay. Yeah. They get Nobel Prize. Ah, uh, okay. Yeah, okay. Okay, there are a few prizes in mathematics. Yeah. But basically, the Nobel Prize was a disaster. Uh, it, it Generally speaking, you mean? Generally speaking. Right. Of uh, course, Freeman Dyson didn't get, famously didn't get Nobel Prize. That's, he mm. saved that story, so he can write. But all the others have Nobel Prizes, and uh, it's immediately they get attracted vast amounts of attention, mm. publicity, the press, mm. Uh, mm. money, and after that, it's very hard for them to get do any serious work. Mm. What they do is they say, well, I've solved the problem of Universe A, I've solved the problem of Universe B. <laughs> you know, they go on and have grand... Sometimes this is do the same too. Mm. It's not quite true. It depends on the individual personality. Yeah. Some say, I've done this. For example, Paul Cohen, who's not the great He, having done that, he said, well, look, I've solved, I'm an analyst, mm. I solved the problem in logic, mm. now I'm going to be solving the problem in, problem in physics. Mm. So he changed it to physics, mm-hmm. and he spent 20 years on it, and he didn't get anywhere. Mm-hmm. So, you know, you, you may try, you mm. may fail, fail completely. Yes. But what, from the physicist's point of view, was so extra- extraordinary at that time in the 70s was how the physicists and mathematicians were working so closely together, yes. right, after so long apart. Right. Uh, well, you know, there, are diff- there were different theories. Some people said... Is the, is, are the mathematicians and physicists just coming to get for one night stand? Yeah. Or is it going to be a long marriage? Yes. Well, on the whole, most of them thought, well, they're just passing the night. Yes, yeah. No, no, that, that would turn out to be wrong. Right. They, they, were, they were coming together again, as they'd been in the past. Mm-hmm. But one, one of the things that I, I would have thought was being different was that mathematics, often people say, moves at a more stately, a slower, more reflective pace, so to speak. And the physicists tend to be very, very quick at coming up with things and quite happily discarding them in five minutes. Uh, you know, there's diff- the different speeds of the, the, which the cultures work. D- did you find that at all, or, or not? Yes, but in a more subtle way. Yeah, okay. The physicists love fast calculated formulas, mm. they love quick experimental results, they're all in a hurry. Mathematicians mm. take their time, but nevertheless, they something they travel fast, something they travel slowly. Mm-hmm. If they've been working away at a problem for a hundred years, mm. gradually, 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 mm. uh, suddenly there can be a revolution and somebody mm. 
Hilbert's work. David Hilbert, yeah. Yes, brought mm. to an end mm. a whole century of work mm. on invariance theory by saying there are only finite ideals of finite genuine, and bang! Mm. So there is a tremendous, like, like when Einstein came along with general theory. Mm. So in mathematics, there are big steps forward, mm. like that, made by people who are reading some stature. No. And they're not always believed, but they, 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 eventually they work. Yes. There are fast movements. And there are slow movements. Mm -hmm. Slow movements are, you know, uh, simply plodding along. Mm -hmm. The fast movements are a stroke of genius, mm -hmm. inspiration. Mm -hmm. And that happens in all. Mm -hmm. It probably happens in every field, mm -hmm. not just mathematics and physics. Mm -hmm. you know, it happens mm -hmm. in music, mm -hmm. it happens in poetry, mm -hmm. uh, painting. Everywhere you go, architecture, there's mm -hmm. a continual accumulation of the past, mm -hmm. classical stuff. And then suddenly comes along with a design of a totally new building. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. or a new piece of music mm -hmm. Beethoven was mm -hmm. doing it all the time mm -hmm. so I think that's it's the nature of the human mind mm -hmm. that it does these things okay. and I'm not going to any part of that tell me uh uh, for many people, I'm sure, including yourself, you regard this coming together of, of the uh, mathematical and physics communities as a good thing. But some people uh, thought it was a bad thing for mathematics, as uh, you know, Jackie yes. and Quinn said that it was uh, poisoning the worlds of uh, pure mathematics, or to, to paraphrase them. Uh, but what, what did you? What was your view about that? I thought it was totally wrong, of course, mm. uh, because they, they, had, they had two views. One was that mathematics could only be done if it was totally rigorous. Yeah. You couldn't have woolly ideas in mathematics. Mm -hmm. That was to give in to the low standards of the physicists. Yeah. And so what we were doing, what people were doing at that time, we were exploring with mathematics. We didn't know how to prove things. We didn't mm. know what, to prove, what the theorems were to prove. Mm. But we were groping our way. Mm. And well, yeah, I felt that this was a world worthwhile exercise. Mm. Jeffy said, no, no, you mustn't do that. You're tarnishing mathematics. Mm. Never touch something which is barge pole he's not rigorous mm, mm -hmm. well that's hopeless go back and read Euler mm. was Euler rigorous? Mm. I've just got it on my desk and that's, mm. it, it, it's all of it's unrigorous yes well but hold on a minute just to challenge you for a second on that I mean with, with your famous uh, index theorem you proved it in multiple ways I mean you were very keen to establish that as a rigorous uh, thing so I mean it has a big part of your uh, of your career yes of course I, I was brought up yeah. that way I went to so yeah. of course I was well trained in British mathematics, mm. there have been oscillations. Mm. There have been, well, not in British mathematics, Italian mathematics. There have been a great period of Italian mathematics, mm. which is a bit woolly. Mm. And then long people like Andre Faye said, no, no, this is all rubbish. Read these foundations, throw it all out. This is to be done. This is the Bubaki uh, tradition, exactly. yeah. yeah. Well, I mean, it has its merits, yeah. clears away the old stuff, or it brushes away the cobwebs, mm. and you start with a clean sweep. Mm. But you lose a lot in the process. Mm. Later on, you say, I threw away those cobwebs. Actually, the cobwebs had a lot in them. Mm. And you go and bring them all out again. Mm -hmm. You find inside the cobwebs, there are actually some jewels. Yeah, yes. And then, so this sweeping away the past and discovering that you made too much sweep away, yeah. that happens in all revolutions too. Mm -hmm. you, you cut off people's heads and then you say, well, why do we cut off lovers' head? Mm -hmm. uh, well, one thing I'd just like to ask you about is yes. you t you took on quite soon after you moved into the physics area, you took on students working in in this relatively new territory. One of them, Simon Donaldson. Yes, of course. Uh, what, what do you remember of uh, of, of him? Because that was a, a famous uh, incident in this subject area. Yes, well, it was quite soon uh, when I was into mathematics. I got a lot of brilliant students. Mm. The, the most brilliant was Simon Donaldson, mm. and he was one of the best students in Cambridge. But he was a very really quiet person. Mm -hmm. 
he had a stammer, which was really hesitant, and it took a little while to realise how original he was. Mm. But he was extremely original, mm. and he took a few hints that were around from us, mm. and suddenly developed them into a magnificent yeah. flower. Looking from uh, Yang Mills' theories in particular, which yes, had yeah, their basis in physics. Exactly. It all came out very fast. He did this all in his first and second year as a student. Mm. Mm-hmm. He was real genius, with care, and with, not slow, but thoroughness. Yes. He, he, he did it all within a year or two, but it wasn't rushed. Yes. A week here and a week there. Yeah, I see. Or you knew where you are. Mm-hmm. The theory was completed, and it was really dramatic watching it. Mm. I was I was privileged to watch it. Really? Yeah. yeah. I was not only privileged to watch it, I was privileged to help him along his route. Yes. Now, I, if you're a teacher and you have a great student, yes. what's your duty? Yes. Is to encourage him, help yeah. him. So I helped him. I got him to talk at the International Congress in Warsaw mm-hmm. when he was still a student. I got him elected as a professor when he was very young. Mm-hmm. I used my influence as I have because I have no hesitation in using my influence in a good cause. Mm-hmm. And there's no better cause than to progress a brilliant student. Mm-hmm. So he was shedding light, very generally speaking, on four-dimensional spaces. Absolutely. Right, and using... The that was, by the way, the biggest... Discovery mathematics in the 20th century. Really? You yes. put it that high? Absolutely. Really? Yes. Well, well let's say the last half of the... All right. Last... Okay. Okay. Uh, still, a, it's a momentous a thing. momentous thing. By far the biggest thing that was... Uh, you know, when people look back from the far future, yeah. they will say, well, I think Feynman said that one name that will stand out is that of Clark Maxwell. Yes. And I think the other name that will stand out was this Adam Donaldson. My goodness. Right. Praise it, praise it. Uh, and... Uh, and I mean, I include Albert Einstein too. Yeah, yeah. Okay. Uh, and and then, of course, I, uh, as I understand it, you, you actually brought uh, helped bring Edward Whitten into this area. Yes. Uh, uh, well, I yeah. met, well, I met him in MIT. Yeah. We fitted very well together. Yeah. I realised at once hmm. that he was a brilliant man and I invited him over. He gave magnificent lectures. And before I knew where he was, I was running to keep up. Hmm. So it's, it's not, there's nothing more satisfying than having brilliant students who hmm. lead ahead. Hmm. And I'm, I've been very fortunate to have a large number of brilliant students mm. in very, very many different fields. Mm. Mm-hmm. And they all created large spots for themselves. Mm-hmm. And some of my students have drifted over into the physics field. Mm. Yeah. Well, Edward Whitten got a field medal. He hasn't yet got a Nobel Prize. Mm. He, that's, that's, that's indication. Mm-hmm. He will get one, but... Mm. What's your view? If it, just one last last question, that uh, it, uh, many many people see what you and your colleagues have done as a great achievement, uh, it, it, uh, and it's how it's enhanced physics. But some people think that this has taken physics in too mathematical direction. What what do you say to them? What is physics, man? What is mathematics? Hmm. I think no simple answers. But basically, a scientist, let's be the word scientist, looks at the world through his eyes. Hmm. He tries to understand it. Hmm. His eyes go to his brain. Hmm. So he has to make a mental picture in his brain mm-hmm. what he sees outside. Mm-hmm. That is mathematics. The outside world. What is the outside world? We don't know what the outside world is. Mm-hmm. And the inside world, the inside world is as far as possible made precise and rigorous and as best we can we're making mathematics. Mm-hmm. Now, if you read James Clark Maxwell's books, yeah, yeah. he said that exactly. Mm. You, must, you must distinguish carefully between mathematics yeah. and reality. Yes. We don't know what reality is. He was a very deep thinker, Clark Maxwell. Well, he mm. was, and of course, he 
Yeah. Well, first of all, thank you for getting Maxwell's statue put up in Edinburgh. I know, I know you were a prime mover behind that. I was the prime mover. I was the mover behind it. <laughs> right. I, I, entirely my effort, I would say, one of the great achievements of my life. Oh. To put Carl Maxwell up there. Right. Absolutely. I mean, uh, and I'm very enormously pleased that it succeeded. Mm. And now, I say, People think, God, he'd always been there. Yes, it does. That statue looks like it's 150 years old, exactly. actually. It does. <laughs> well, it's designed for that purpose. Yes. But it, 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 it's a. Uh, it's just today, somebody told me they're just putting out a plaque there. Yeah. Uh, well, on the side, you know, for the general public. Yes. Who was Clark Maxwell? Yes. So yes. you don't know who Clark Maxwell is, yeah. go there and. Press the buttons. It's just to be installed today. Uh, okay. Well, that, as you say, that was that was a, a, a really worthwhile achievement. Yeah. Making putting him front and centre in, uh, in in Edinburgh. Okay, Michael. Thank you very much indeed. Not at all. Delighted. It was good to hear that Michael never regretted his move to, or rather, towards physics. At the end of the interview, he began to talk, as he often did, about the Scottish natural philosopher James Clerk Maxwell perhaps most famous for his pioneering theory of electricity and magnetism. Maxwell also thought deeply about the relationship between mathematics and physics. I remember drawing Michael's attention to that lecturer a couple of years before, and it was wonderful to see him beaming with pleasure as he read Maxwell's words on this subject for the first time. Before I left his apartment, Michael insisted on showing me the black and white photograph he'd recently acquired of James Clerk Maxwell. It was, Michael told me, once the property of the son of the physicist J.J. Thompson, discoverer of the electron. I asked Michael if I could take a snap of him holding that photo, and of course he enthusiastically obliged. As I left, I couldn't help feeling a little sad. Michael handed me a copy of the booklet he'd prepared for the memorial service for his wife, Lily, who'd passed away a few months before. He was, he told me, soon to attend the memorial service in Oxford for his recently deceased brother Patrick, a distinguished legal scholar. These are sad times, he said, adding that he was determined to make most of the time he had left. I sensed that he knew his days were numbered. But as we heard in the interview, he had loved his life as a mathematician and been proud to help bring his subject closer to physics. He was one of the great unifiers of our time, and he's much missed. A quick postscript. During the summer of 2018, Michael read and checked the chapter about him in my book, The Universe Speaks in Numbers. While I was writing that chapter, it often occurred to me that his biography was just crying out to be written. I hope that some ambitious biographer will take up that challenge and give us a fitting memorial to a truly great life.